open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. As I continue to go through the book of Acts, we did have a time out last week as I spoke on Psalm 27. And a couple weeks earlier than that, I actually spoke on just the Lord's Supper from an Acts 2 perspective. An Acts 2 perspective. And I just want to go back to where we were in Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And as soon as my technology allows me to get out of Esther and into Acts, here it comes, something's happening. Something's still happening. Okay. Let's see what happens here. Okay, starting in Acts 2.42. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 41. It'd be familiar to most of you. So those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and all had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions of belonging, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you always for your illuminating word that teaches us that you are truly alive. You're alive, God. You're alive. The tomb is empty, Lord Jesus. And you are alive, the head of your church You are adding to the numbers day by day, those who are being saved. You are blessing us with glad and sincere hearts, Father God, as we meet one another's needs, as we sit under apostolic teaching, as we pray kingdom prayers, as we have a common fellowship. And Father God, as we partake together the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Father God, continue to do miracles in our midst today, God. We ask you to open up the eyes of the spiritual blind, Father God. Remove the heart of stone. Renew the mind that needs to be transformed by the wording of your word, Father. And God, we just ask you to bless this service today. Let us understand what it means to be a New Testament church of grace. In your name I pray. This is Praising God Part 2. I spoke on verses 42 uh, a couple weeks ago. And I'll just give a little snapshot later on. But we have here a snapshot of the Christian church in its infancy. When it was a fledgling church. When the Holy Spirit descended and uh, 120 people were filled with the Spirit of God. They spoke in strange tongues. They spoke in other languages. Uh, People from 19 other nations around the world that were at Jerusalem for Pentecost heard them the praises of God in their own language for the first time, they were only used to hearing the the sacred language of the Hebrew tongue when it came to speaking about God. 
And now all of a sudden, they're hearing it in their own language for the first time by a bunch of Galileans. And, and Peter stands up on that day and he brings correction. The first sermon was an, a, 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 an apologetic sermon. It was telling people that, no, they're not filled with new wine. But this is the fulfillment of a prophecy of Joel. And Peter preaches the resurrection. 3,000 people hear his word. They cry out, what what must we do to be saved? And 3,000 were baptized and added to the Christian church. And we see something that's going on now. We see what they continue to do. And we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And we see it in a wonderful psalm, Psalm 133. And it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when the brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. On the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the quintessential description of biblical unity. Uh, I will take a moment just now to ask you, what does biblical unity mean to us? Does that have any bearing on our life? I hope so, because that's everything to God. Biblical unity between people, many races, tongues, tribes, and, uh, and people come together in the common solidarity of faith in Jesus Christ. In that place is the commanded blessing, life forevermore. And that's what we have, whether it's 2,000 years ago or today, we have this commanded blessing. And that's what's going on in the city for the first time. We have a picture of Jerusalem filled with the joy of God, filled with the joy of God. Jerusalem hasn't seen this since the time of Solomon, when the Shekinah glory came and it filled the temple. That's the picture we have going on here as people came from all these different lands to hear the word of God in solidarity, to worship God, to worship Jesus. Christ paid the price for this type of unity that we just read sincere and glad hearts they, they sold everything they had to, to meet needs other people's needs Christ paid for this type of unity and the spirit has the power to carry Christ's work and drive his work deep into the human heart only the Holy Spirit can do that we cannot talk a people into this kind of unity you cannot regulate Politically, this kind of unity. You can't give this kind of fellowship. You can't threaten it. It's a gift of God. Christ paid for it. The Holy Spirit has the power and the mission to carry this work of Christ deep into our hearts that we too know the joy and sincerity of sharing with each other. Three weeks ago when I spoke on verse 42, we saw the four foundational elements Of the first church, and really every healthy church ever since. We saw in verse 42, apostolic teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This wasn't some sort of arbitrary teaching about the moment. It was a scriptural understanding of Christ from the Old Testament, along with the historical Jesus himself. They broke down the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ on a daily basis from the Old Testament and from an eyewitness account. They fed the sheep. They were saved by the Savior. Now they're learning about the Savior. 
They devoted themselves to the fellowship. It's a unique fellowship. This fellowship wasn't based on circumcision. It wasn't based on being a child of Abraham. It wasn't even based on being part of the old covenant anymore. This was based on a mutual common ground of personal salvation in Jesus Christ. This fellowship was unique. It broke down human pride. I spoke about this when I spoke on this text. It broke down human pride. And what was left was just God alone. That's it. When a person draws closer to Jesus Christ, what happens is we decrease, he increases, and we realize for the first time in our lives that really we are just part of the human race. Dependent on God. That's the type of fellowship that's going on over here. We spoke about the breaking of bread, and I took a whole sermon on this. Because it wasn't just a sacrament of let's get together and share some bread and some wine and speak about Jesus. It really was a reenactment of what Christ did that day when he got out on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet on that last Passover. And how he humbled himself for their sake. And he reminded them that a teacher, a student is not greater than the teacher. And if I have done this to you, you ought to do this to each other. Blessed are you if you know these things and do them. So the breaking of bread is not just a formality. It's not a technicality. The breaking of bread goes right into the heart of the humility of Jesus Christ to come and die for humanity. A hopeless, wretched, miserable humanity. And that the Son of God didn't just die, but he met our personal needs by getting down on his feet. So we spent the whole sermon on that. Then, of course, they devoted themselves to the prayers. And most likely what's going on over here are two different elements of the prayer. It's First of all, it's kingdom prayers now. The way Christ taught them. The apostles would teach them that the kingdom of God has come. And, 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 and they're doing it from an Abba Father spiritual experience because they didn't receive a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship by which they all, and we all today, cry out Abba Father. There was this extraordinary closeness with God. That was reflected in prayer. You know, and as a Christian for many years and as a minister, you know, you, there's nothing like hearing someone pray to their father. If you want to know what's in someone's heart, listen to them pray on a consistent basis. There is, there is a, a uniting of hearts at prayer time. Something that I think a lot of Christians miss out on. There's personal prayer, but there is something very, very special and unique. And we're called to corporate prayer when you hear the affections of another believer on behalf of someone else and on behalf of God's kingdom. We spoke how all these components are still the basis for biblical Christianity today. And wherever men are faithful to these principles that I just said, apostolic teaching, prayer, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, you will see the same spiritual fruit as the evidence. Wherever a man opens up shop, wherever men open up shop, shop, and they are faithful to the gospel as the apostles preached it. They are faithful to prayer, they are faithful to fellowship, and they are faithful to the breaking of bread the sacrament, you will see this fruit. You will see what we're going to go into tonight. Tonight we'll finish these verses by starting in verse 43. Excuse me. <coughs> verse 43. And all I want to say is, and awe 
came upon every soul. And I will stop there. Because a lot's going to be missing if we don't take a moment out to find out what's going on in Jerusalem when the awe or the reverence or the fear of God fell on people. Two groups of people fell on the believers and it fell on the non-believer. Give an example. You know, when you're trying to capture the awe of God. We're going back into a text 2,000 years ago. We're trying to capture that moment. And as I was reflecting on this text, and I was thinking of an awe moment, you know, a sort of like a national awe moment, or maybe even a world awe moment. I thought of that July 20th, 1969, when we were all huddled around a television set, watching this man get out of this little space capsule. It was a small step for that man, but it was a giant step for mankind. And there was a sense of this, you were part of something spectacular. You know, I was only nine years old, but you know, I can still remember everybody glued to the TV. You know, it was like, yay for the Americans. You felt safe, you felt secure, you felt you were on the winning team. The whole world was glued in that day to man stepping on the moon. People were in awe. Russia wasn't too happy about it. I don't know if you don't know that. They weren't really excited about it because we beat them there. They sent the first probe in 61, but we sent the first man. That was Kennedy's idea. Let's get a man to the moon. And we did it. Eight years later, we put a man on the moon. But, you know, what a, what a great techno, technological advancement for mankind. But it left a, a type of awe when everybody was talking about the same thing. The next day, in school, the newspapers, everything was focused on one event. Spectacular. In a sense, that's what we have going on here with the awe of God. I don't want to miss the theology behind this. I'm only going to spend a couple of minutes on it, but there is a theology of awe. I don't know if you know that. I want to read Exodus 15, verse 16. Moses is commenting on just what happened at the Red Sea. And Moses says this, Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. To your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by on whom you have purchased. This terror and dread fell upon all. When the water opened up, and the people of Israel passed through. And then the Egyptian army came in and they were swallowed up. They were in awe of what had taken place. Esther says it a little better. In chapter 8, verse 16. And in every providence, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. A feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. They weren't Jews. Why? For fear of the Jews had fallen on them. That's what's happening in our text today. For a moment in Jerusalem, only two months earlier, they crucified in a hostile stance against the Son of God. They crucified the Holy One. The Jews were hostile towards God. But God held them at bay and secured a beachhead until the fledgling church could take root in Jerusalem. 
A fear type came upon them. Their, their eyes were glossed over just for a moment. Their hostility ceased and were restrained just for a moment. In chapter 3, it all ends. It all, the hostility begins again. But for a moment, awe fell upon everybody in Jerusalem. To the saved, as we see in Esther, it was glad and joyful hearts. But to everybody else, it was fear. This awe of God that was going on in the Christian church stopped the persecutors from persecuting them for a moment. But as we see in chapter 3 and 4, and you can read that tonight, then God once again will allow the forces of evil to assail the church. And you will say, why? Someone say, why? Why? Well, you come back in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to tell you why. But I'll give you this hint. It has a solidifying component. If you read chapter 4, you see how the church was driven to prayer and dependence on God. And that's what it does. It drove the church, this little church, it grew them stronger and stronger together as they depended on God. But for a moment now, there was an awe and reverence of fear in Jerusalem that even the hostile forces had to take up, take, a, take their stand and be restrained for a moment. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. These miracles were for several reasons. First, we need to understand this. We need to see the miracles for what it meant in the book of Acts, in the time of Christ, and in the context of what we see here. This was to establish, and don't forget this. We have 3,000 devout Jews just converted. And they're going to follow a bunch of, you can smell the fish on these young boys still. They were turning away from their priests. They were turning away from their scribes. They were turning away from their Pharisees. They were turning away from their lawyers. And now they're going to follow a bunch of kids. They're kids. To be a priest, you had to be 30 years old to enter into the ministry. They might have been in their late teens or early 20s. And they were the new emissaries of God. They were the new ambassadors of Christ. These miracles had a affirming quality to it to let them know, because it's the same word, same language used for Christ in the same chapter, that the miracles were a testimony, not just to the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but these were God's new ambassadors. It's not the priest, it's not the Levites, it's not the high priest, it's not the scribes, it's not the Pharisees, it's not the Sadducees. That is over. It's following these Jewish boys. That's it. You were going to turn a whole nation upside down and say, well, you know something, you got to leave the temple. You got to leave all the scribes. You got to leave the lawyers. You got to leave the religious leaders. You got to leave the elders teaching. And you got to follow these 12 kids over here. You think about that. The signs and wonders was to confirm and affirm that this is the new direction God has gone to. That's what it's for. This is not for me and you to gather around and hope to see a miracle. Oh God, scratch my curious itch. I love novelty. I want to speak about miracles. You know, we downplay the important role of what was taking place in this text. And we miss it for the people of Jerusalem. They felt safe. We've made the right choice. We believe in the Christ. We believe he's the son of the living God. We believe he died for us. We believe he's the Messiah. We believe he's the Lamb of God. And we also believe you now. 
we also believe you. For Jesus told them, he who receives you receives, and he who receives me receives, he who sent me. There's a whole chain of reaction over here. These aren't miracles for curiosity's sake. This was to confirm a new ambassador, the apostles of Christ. Very important for us to know. 3,000 new devout Jewish converts needed to know through many evidences that this wasn't some new group of self-proclaimed emissaries of God. No, no. These were the new ambassadors of Christ and let the world take notice this was God's using. Uneducated and unlearned men. Fishermen. Tax collectors. Today, we don't need signs and wonders to confirm or affirm a ministry. Just a little application. It's the fruit that remains as a sign of a ministry's calling. It's the salvation and the growth of people that confirms a ministry. Not signs and wonders. Let's get that straight. But it had another purpose. These signs and wonders were the grace of God. It was to offer grace again to a people who already have rejected his kindness. They rejected Christ. Peter rebuked them. You are the ones who crucified the Holy One of God. But yet he's back again to offer you grace. He's back again. You didn't believe the Son, but he sent us back to you to offer you salvation. And the signs and wonders were there for their sake to realize that this message is the message. And God continued to add to their number daily those who were being saved. So these aren't just some arbitrary uh, uh, tricks by the apostles to perform miracles for the sake of the audience to wow people. This had deep theology behind it, and we need to know it so we can appreciate God's grace to his ancient people 2,000 years ago in the middle of a hostile Jerusalem where Peter wanted to run, they all wanted to run, but here they are, they're standing bold on behalf of God, but on behalf of the gospel. When I read this text, it brings me to tears to see God's grace to his people. Verse 44, 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needed. These verses, if we're not careful, are packed with God's grace. And I don't want to miss this. I'm going to take a moment on this. Just to see what's going on. We can think, oh, you know, it's, a, it's some form of spiritual communism. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, just forced giving of some sort. Some kind of forced equality going on here. And we'd be totally, totally missing the point of really what's taking place here. We have to go back 2,000 years ago. You have Jesus crucified. Jesus resurrected. You have Jesus and 12 disciples. Then you have 120 disciples. Then two months later, you have 3,000 disciples. All in a very short, concentrated time. And who were these 3,000 disciples? Can I tell you? 
they were poor. Poor, poor, poor. Matter of fact, James teaches us that God has chosen the poor of the world to make them rich in faith. God does his greatest work amongst the poor. It doesn't mean he doesn't save the rich. He chooses the foolish things and the base things of the world. He chooses the poor things of the world. 3,000 people with no money, no food, no provision, no homes. Most of them coming from 19 other nations on a three-month journey because they're there. Why? Because it's Pentecost. It's God's providence that brought these people to Jerusalem in the first place. They hear the gospel. They're saved and they're not going anywhere. And God has to meet their need now. This is not about, all right, get your money and put it into a pot. All of a sudden, there was this logistical problem. What are we going to do with everybody? Feed them. Don't you remember what the apostles told Jesus? Jesus, you've got 15,000 people over here. It's getting nighttime. We can't send them home. How are we going to feed them? Because you feed them. We don't, we don't have nothing. Give me the little boy. Give me a couple of fish. Give me a couple of loaves of bread. Let me give thanks and I'll show you how to feed the people. That's what's going on here. We got 3,000 people and who's going to provide for them? God's children provide for God's children. God provides for his children through us. Do you know God can provide for the 90 who have not with the 10 who do? The world can't do that. We do that. That's what's going on over here. This is providence. 3,000 poor people got saved. Let's have a revival. But you want all the rich people getting saved. You want all the people that can give and fill the coffers. You don't. No, 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 no. God saved. God blessed. And then he met their need. God meets their needs. These are his new children. And how does he meet 3,000 new children's needs? By the other children's material blessings that God already gave them. They're selling their possessions. They're selling their homes. As people had a need, they would sell. As new needs came up, think of the logistical problems. Think that the administrative gifts that were needed. I've been speaking about this. Think about the organizational gifts that were needed. It's all up and running. As the need came by, they met the need. The apostles were telling them there's another need. And someone said, I'll give. I'll give it to you. God already provided for me in my life. I'll give to God's new children. Come on. We want revival? Are you ready to give? We know that God owns the sheep on what? But does he own our bank accounts? Does he own what's in your pocket? Oh, Pastor, don't be touching on my, don't be stepping on my feet now. You know, save my family, but don't ask too much of me. Save the neighborhood, do something in the nation, but don't ask of us. No, 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 no. Don't miss it here. This overwhelming generosity was spontaneous and voluntary. Spontaneous and voluntary. And it was taught. It was encouraged. The apostles would have naturally laid out before the people the need. The apostles would have said, 
We're having trouble. God, look what God is doing. Hearts would have been so encouraged. Hearts would have been filled with gladness and sincerity. And the apostles would have said, but we, we have great needs. That's all they had to say. There was no twisting of the arm. There was no manipulating the people. There was no saying, well, you got to give. If, otherwise, you won't be blessed. you got to give the seed money. No, no, no. All the apostles said is, God needs. That's it. And when you're moved by the Spirit and you're filled with the Spirit, what you have belongs to God. And they gave 3,000 new poor converts and nobody was in need. Think about that. Nobody was in need. Our bank accounts are God's checking accounts. Never forget that. Our bank accounts are God's checking account. And it meets the, need, meets the needs of God's people. He goes on to say, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day, many people were being saved. Think of that picture. Day by day, people coming to the Lord, confessing their sin, uh, being water baptized, you know, being brought into the body of Christ. All of a sudden, they're, they're, they're raptured up into this generous, magnanimous spirit. All needs are being met. For the first time, the poor felt rich. Reminds me of that other great text in James that says, let the poor man exalt in exaltation and let the rich man exalt in his humiliation. Let the rich man realize for the first time in his life after he's saved, I'm really nothing at all without God. And let the poor man for the first time in his life realize he's everything with God. Let the rich man exalt that I'm a humble servant of Christ. And let the poor man exalt that I'm a child of the living God. Only the church can do that. Only God has the power to do that. And day by day, many were getting saved in houses, at the temple, in the marketplace. That's what's going on over here. It's not to a sermon every day. It didn't say Peter kept on preaching. The apostles kept on preaching, and they did. The work going on here, the day-by-day work, is just common fellowship. From house to house. Unsponsored. Spontaneous. Magnanimous. A spirit of mercy, generosity, and hospitality was just rising up in people. Just to open up their homes to the new converts. The new poor converts that had nothing. And said, come. Come and let's worship together. Let's talk about the apostles' teaching. Let's fellowship together. Let's pray these new kingdom prayers from an Abba Father experience. Let's break bread together. Do you see it? That's what God added to their numbers day by day. Not an altar call. No, 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 no. Something ma- ma- marvelous and magnificent is taking place here. 
Jerusalem is filled with new young converts, zealous for God, zealous for good works, zealous for opening up their hearts, zealous for giving their goods, zealous for opening up their homes, zealous for meeting needs, zealous for the poor people. That's what's going on. And it's in that environment that God continued to add to their numbers daily those who are being saved. Pastor, I, want, I need you to speak to somebody, Pastor. They need to be saved. Pastor, they're having a hard time. I need you to speak to someone. And we do that. But the day has to come when we can do that. We can say, you know, someone, why don't you come over to my house? I want to speak to you. I'm going to have a meal with you. I'll take you out to dinner. And let me talk to you about God's way. And that's how God adds to the church daily. It doesn't have to be some kind of evangelistic preaching uh, big thing. God does so much great work in small groups. And we lost that. We want someone else to do all the work. We want to come in, turn on a light switch, bring our loved ones, everybody gets saved, go home, and that's it. Don't ask me too much. Don't ask my bank account. Don't ask me to give. Don't tell me about people's need. Don't make me feel guilty, Pastor. I got it set in my mind already. This is what I give, and I give no more. This is what I do. I do no more. This is what I'm going to do, and I have no other plans. Don't step on my philosophy of ministry. Not so 2,000 years ago. People took it upon themselves to open up their hearts, open up their homes, open up their purses, to share Christ and to meet needs. And that's how God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. It wasn't the big meetings, the big tent meetings. It wasn't the big preaching campaign or crusades that Peter did. No. Ordinary people, the baker, the candlestick maker, Who's the other guy? And the butcher. Don't forget the butcher. That's what we need. We need a butcher too. We got a chef. We got a pastry chef. But that's how it's done. It's done heart to heart, face to face, home to home, friend to friend, need to need. And that's missed so many times when we come to this text. Let me do a little application on this. Many over the years, I've heard many, 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 many sermons. And many run to this text to support a particular point of view. There's the ministries that want more money. They run to this and say, look what they did. They gave everything. So they run to this text to support, you know, that, that assumption. Others wanted to for the signs and the wonders. They say, well, signs and wonders should be a regular part of the Christian life today because look in chapter 2 of Acts, it was then. And so they run there and they try to, and they miss the whole theological point, which is a lot more uh, important than scratching our curiosity. Many pastors, and I got to be careful, we run to this to support prayer. You got to pray. Look, they prayed together. They came together and they prayed. Come out. I'll guilt you into coming. That doesn't work either. Then, of course, it's teaching. It's just about the teaching. You've got to teach. You've got to teach. That's it. It's all. Close your mind to anything else. And it's just teaching. So we've got to be careful when we go here that we, we can separate. We can distinguish between the four elements. But you can't separate them. They come together. Are you with me? We can study prayer. We can study giving. We 
can study the signs and wonders. We can study uh, uh, the fellowship. We can study teaching. We can study gladness and sincerity of heart. We can study adding to the numbers daily, but you can't separate it. It's all one. But let me just say this. The main thrust of the text is a healthy and happy state of the fledgling church. That's the thrust. That's the main thrust. God has planted a church in Jerusalem right next to the temple. God's glory was not in the temple no more. It was in these little home churches. It was in this church. It was under the apostles' teaching. It was nowhere else to be found but here. 2,000 years later, this finished product of a healthy and happy church is still the main characteristic of being faithful to apostolic teaching. Every true church that faithfully proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ in the spirit that God has given it to us as we're spirit-filled will have the same components, the same elements, the same properties, the same dynamics. There will be prayer. There will be a study of the scripture. There will be fellowship. There will be a breaking of the bread. And there will be sincere and generous, grateful hearts. And God will add to our numbers daily those who are being saved. We don't need to add to it by way of cunning and crafty ideas to reach the culture. How are we going to reach the culture? Well, let's change the prayer then. Prayers, you know, it's an hour long. Make it 30, 25 minutes. People like that. You know, let's, 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 let's critique this over here. Then take sin out of the apostolic preaching and, and take away hell. We don't want to hear that either. So we'll, we'll curtail that. We'll make it palatable to a God-hating culture. That's what we'll do. Let's take the gospel. Let's water it down. Let's make it palatable so those people that don't like God, they'll feel comfortable about hearing about God. And people do it all the time. And we share that from this, this pulpit. We say, that, that's addition by subtraction. You want the crowds? You want the crowds to come in? You want the addition of the crowds? Subtract from the truth. And watch them come pouring in. Watch the, the ears get tickled. And they're all come running in. Oh, we like that church. They feed you and they don't scare you. They're really good out there. They, they like that. They sing these happy songs and, and so on and so forth. But true gospel ministry, remember this, is always hemmed in by persecution. We see this little snapshot of the happy fellowship. But only weeks before they were persecuted and killed Christ. And in the next chapter, the persecution starts all over again. All over again. But that church and every true gospel church is ultimately sustained by God's grace, who adds to their numbers daily those who are being saved. Two. Touch upon a political thing here as I close. Illegal immigration. We've got to be careful as Christians. We really, really have to be careful on adopting the political rhetoric about illegal immigration. Because God brings people by providence, just like he did 2,000 years ago when 3,000 people got saved. They were there by providence. They weren't, they were not uh, residents of Jerusalem. They were from other nations. And they came. So they were Jews and they were devout, but they were different. They acted different. They spoke different. They smelled different. They were different. 
But they were there by providence. And they heard the preaching of the gospel. They got saved and God provided for them. So when it comes to illegal immigration, when it comes to what's going on in Syria and people coming over here as refugees, and we've got to be just careful on how we handle that in our hearts. Because we don't know what God is doing. And we don't know how God's providentially going to bring people who can't hear the gospel there, but they can hear it here. And they can't be provided for there, but they can be provided for here. So I have a political, very strong conservative political uh, convictions. And I think the nation should be run a, uh, a certain way. But i got to step back from that and make sure the cross speaks to my heart louder than politics. Are you with me, church? Amen. And I'm going to tell you that right now. That's something i got to prayerfully consider. i got to bring it before the Lord. Don't get caught up in the mass hysteria. Don't get caught up in the paranoia. Don't get caught up in someone else's spirit that... Whatever they're going through, I don't know. We've got to keep our eyes on the cross and say, God, whatever you're doing in America, whatever is going on, it's by your providence. And you will watch over us so that the gospel is preached and you add to our number daily those who are being saved. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we just, uh, we thank you for your providence. We thank you for Pentecost. We thank you for that day that you bring people from 19 different nations to come on a religious holiday. Just think they were going back home. And they never went back home. They got saved and they were provided for right there in the heart of Jerusalem by people who met their needs. God, you're incredible. And to think that you will use us to provide for others' needs, Father God. That we too, as we sit on the apostolic teaching and kingdom prayers, a right understanding of the Lord's Supper, in our common fellowship as born-again believers who all trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we too can meet needs and we can worship and fellowship with sincere and glad hearts, God. And we can watch how you add to the church daily those who are being saved just through common hospitality practice of just being courteous, of just being generous. You will actually save souls through our testimony and our giving and our zealous for good deeds, Father God. Father God, let us see that you are in full control of all things, God. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.